to the Historias podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. Any visitor to Spain today will be familiar with the Corte Inglés department store as the anchor of the Spanish commercial landscape. But the history of the department store in Spain is about much more than just one chain and has socio-political implications far beyond the window displays and discounts. Here to discuss that history and these implications with me is Alejandro Gomez del Moral, University Lecturer of Economic and Social History at the University of Helsinki, and author of the book, Buying into Change, Mass Consumption, Dictatorship, and Democratization in Franco Spain, 1939-1982, out last year with University of Nebraska Press. So Alejandro, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm, it's a real pleasure to be uh, on, on the podcast. I, I enjoy listening to it, and it's really fun to be able to be a part of it myself. I thought um, we could start by taking a step back a little bit. And um, I just wanted to ask you, you know, before we had all these department stores, how did people do their shopping in Spain? So that's uh, an interesting question. The thing is, when you fixate on the department store, when you, when you think about it a lot, you might sort of start to wonder that, right? How did people shop before? But when you take a, a bit of a step back, you realize you kind of already know the answer because those commercial forms didn't really go away and we interact with them on a daily basis. So in Spain, one kind of, I guess it's a department store, but it's not really what we mean, is described as an almacén popular. Almacenes populares, popular department stores, popular stores. And this would be, it's not a perfect analogy, but for our, like a dollar general or something like that. You, know, you wouldn't call that a department store. It does have a wide variety of items, but it's not the same thing. The other thing is local stores. I mean, you know, uh, in even in our lifetimes, well, mine at least, if if you believe my kids that I'm older than time itself, you know, you could go and buy your shoes not from the shoe section in a department store, but from like a Foot Locker or Payless shoe stores, right? And I, I guess those things still exist. I mean, e-commerce is a thing now, but but yeah. This is how people shop, and to this day still shop. You go into central Barcelona, for instance, you'll find any number of specialized stores. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's one of the neat things about Spain is is to wander through the, some of those old streets, whether it's Madrid or, or Barcelona, and, and find some of those old stores that, that are still around. Okay, so within that context, then, you know, when and how was the department store first introduced to Spain? Great question. So I need to preface this with a uh, with uh, a note that when we talk about the department store, there's this is going to sound a bit nebulous, I know, but there's the department store and the department store. And so what I mean by this is that the department store that we associate and that we think about today uh, is a department store that is specifically oriented toward the masses, toward everybody being able to go in and consume shop at least potentially and if they don't buy at least window shop right and imagine themselves consuming the first department stores weren't like that right um they were and this is not just true in spain this is true everywhere they developed right they were the bourgeois department store so um i can talk about the slight the, the differences in 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 passing in, in just a, a second mm -hmm. but to answer your question before i get too far off topic the uh, department store arrives in Spain in 1881. 1881 is when the first department store 
as we recognize them today, opens. So this is not a mass-oriented department store yet. This is uh, Almacenes El Siglo, which opens in central Barcelona. On for those of for anyone familiar with Barcelona, it opens up on the uh, Rambla de los, Flor, de los Flores, so the very top part of La Rambla near Plaza Catalunya. This is commercial, the old commercial center of the city. And it's very quickly followed by a, a succession of other stores, right? Almacenes Sirogay in, in Salamanca in the early 20th century, um, as well as a number of other stores, some of them more properly Almacenes Populares, Almacenes El Águila in Madrid. There's a number of them. Mm-hmm. As for the, the mass-oriented department store, and this happens much later, that's a creature of the 1930s um, and the 1940s. It's an import. Uh, for which historian Pilar Toboso Sanchez, a historian of of, uh, entrepreneurship, of business, and of the department store at the Universidad Autónoma de Madrid, rightly credits one family, an extended family, the Fernández Areces family, for lack of a better term, for, for this model's introduction. Okay, and could you tell us a little more about that? Like, what were the differences between those two different types of department stores? And, um, you know, why at this particular moment in the 1930s was this mass department store introduced to Spain? And you, you said it was an import. Where was it imported from? Great questions and uh, good catch. I did promise I was going to mention that. Uh, okay. <laughs> so keeping me honest here, the, the differences first, mm-hmm. right? The differences are most especially perceptual. Right. And what I mean by this is the bourgeois department store, as a number of scholars have noted, I won't go into the details, uh, was very classed. Right. You know, you were uh, if you went in there, you were expected to be middle class. Some scholars have pointed out that it was a site where you could perform your middle class identity. You would have working class shop uh, shop workers, salespersons, usually women waiting on you right you know bringing you Mm -hmm. items to try um and so you could perform that kind of power hierarchy right you know you're sitting there being handed things to try sitting while the person sort of you know shuttles things back and forth at your beck and call the other thing is it was it was a consumer spectacle this is one of the things that made it quite different from some of the stores that came before. Many of the grand department stores of the early days, they had big open uh, staircases, central staircases that were meant to dazzle and mm-hmm. that were meant to bring people in who could engage in a certain amount of flannery, right? Flannery being the term that's used for uh, this, this kind of uh, public um, cavorting, public walking around, it, seeing, uh, seeing and being seen. But the expectation in a bourgeois department store is if you walked in, you were going to buy. Right. And you would have shop workers come and kind of gently nudge you. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the department store at this time usually had its items behind a counter. So you would go to a section and talk to a worker and they would bring you things. Right. As opposed to what we recognize today, where you can walk through open aisles where there are racks of garments or shoes or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the mass oriented department store. There is the structural difference, the more kind of open, openly stocked aisles, mm-hmm. the uh, shop workers who don't come and bug you, except for, you know, to ask, may I help you every mm-hmm. so often? 
But the other thing is that there is not as much of an expectation, A, that you will buy if you enter, right? Nobody's going to bug you about that. And B, that if you enter, you must be of a certain standing, of a certain social demographic, right? Um, mm. Whereas to use, an, I guess, maybe an American expression, in the 1880s, you might have gotten the hairy eyeball uh, if, uh, if you walked into uh, uh, El, Almacenes El Siglo. In the 1950s, if you walk into Galerias Preciados and you, are the, you look visibly working class in the way that sort of tipped off this response in the 1880s, you're not going to get the same kind of reaction mm -hmm. because the idea is that there is a, a, a tacit expectation that everyone is entitled to consume, that everyone is a potential consumer, that consumption has been democratized. I'm still curious because uh, you mentioned that it, that it was an import that, that, you know, where the department store, came, yes, this mass department store, where it came to Spain from. Sure, sure. Uh, and I'll try to keep this story short because it is, <laughs> it's a really fun story. Okay. Um, so the basic pieces that someone's going to need to know are one, there was a tradition in the 19th century, particularly the late 19th century, particularly in the north, uh, the northern uh, Spanish region of Asturias, right, of what were called Indianos, right? Indianos were individuals who, Spanish individuals, uh, usually uh, socioeconomically less privileged individuals who would do what was called hacer las Indias. They would travel to the Indies to, and by this, I mean the West Indies. I mean, Cuba, I, especially Cuba, mm -hmm. uh, particularly, after a, particularly after the loss of the overwhelming bulk of Spain's colonial presence in, uh, in, in the Americas, which happened in the early and, and mid uh, 19th century. So they would go, and the idea was you were going to go and make your fortune there because that was a land of opportunity, and then you were going to come back a million. And it didn't work out for everybody, but it's a recognized phenomenon. And there are like architectural books about the fancy houses that a whole generation of Indianos built in places like Tijon and Oviedo with their, uh, with their, their, their newly made fortunes. Mm -hmm. So one such individual, uh, was a man named Jose Fernández Rodríguez, Pepín, as they called him. Pepín went over to Cuba in the late 19th century, or might have been the early 20th, I can't remember the exact year, but it's right around the turn of the century. And he took a job with his uncle, César, uh, who had done the same thing, but had never returned to Asturias. He had made his life in Cuba. And he had risen to a very high level in a department store that had opened in Havana, the jewel of Cuban commerce, Almacenes El Encanto, which was heavily inspired by the cutting edge methods that were being pioneered in department stores that our American listeners will absolutely have heard of. Places like Wanamaker's, Macy's, Marshall Fields, right? Mm -hmm. or Bostonians, Filene's. So El Encanto was steeped in these new methods, right? Methods that I won't go into them all, but methods that could include, for instance, having artfully curated window displays instead of just shoving all of your stock into the window display and creating this like riot of, of, <laughs> of, of inventory, mm -hmm. right? So what we might call, you know, some of the techniques that we recognize today as modern marketing. So Pepin was very successful. He made a life there. 
he rose to be one of the, 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 the leading figures in El Encanto. And then the early 1930s rolled around and he decided he wanted to go home. So he went home. And in 1934, he opened his own department store in uh, central Madrid. Uh, this was Galerías Preciados. Well, actually, sorry, correction. Its original name was Cenerías Carretas because his original sort of plan was he named it after the street it was on. It was on Calle, uh, Calle de Carretas in central Madrid, a little bit south, if I remember correctly, of Puerta del Sol. And then uh, later in the 40s, he would open a branch called Galerías Preciados on Preciados Street. For those of you who are wondering where it is, today it's a FNAC. The, or at least it was the last time I was in Madrid. That may have it, it is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was there um, this summer. So. so he did this. Now, meanwhile, while he was in Cuba, he, he picked up all this stuff, right? All of these uh, techniques. He was steeped in this. He took trips to the, to the U.S. and witnessed the effectiveness of, of modern point-of-sale marketing firsthand, of the methods that both El Encanto and American stores used to organize their workforce effectively, as well as uh, leverage obedience and loyalty. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to that in a little mm -hmm. bit. And also he was joined by a cousin of his, a man named Ramon Areces from the same town, right? Uh, Ramon Areces would go on to not completely found, he sort of acquired and then built into a department store, a small tailor shop located in central Madrid called El Corte Inglés. Yeah, a lot of people mistranslate that. A lot of non-Spanish speakers mistranslate that name as the English uh, court. No, that'd be La Corte Inglesa. El Corte Inglés is the English cut, like an English cut of suit. Ah, okay. Well, I myself right. have yeah, been mistranslating that then. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So like that that's where the name comes from because the idea, you know, the idea was this London fashion, this English cut of suit is very fashionable. So right. that's why it was called that. Um, oh, okay. That's that's fascinating. And also I think that the that the origins of this kind of modern department store are, are actually from Cuba or the US by way of Cuba. It's it's kind of an example of the colony or the former colony going back and influencing the, the former yeah. metropole. Oh um, yeah, it's it's one of the central sort of themes of the book in general is the, the activity of these transatlantic knowledge and cultural flows, right? Because when you think about it, the U.S. was also not the birthplace of the department store. The birthplace of the department store was, was Paris, the, the Bon Marché, founded by Aristide Boussicot in 1852. So this commercial form flows to the U.S., gets modified in the U.S., goes down to Cuba, has its own you know, Cuba puts its own spin on it. Mm -hmm. And then Pepin takes it back to Spain and puts yet another spin on it. So you've got this back and forth going on. Um, it's yeah. like a, like a, I like to think of it as a revolving door. Yeah, you mentioned that this is really kind of coming to Spain in, um, you know, starting in the 1930s. And, uh, but then of course we have the Spanish Civil War, 1936, 1939. And then, you know, in the aftermath of that in the 1940s, of course, that was a very difficult time for Spain. You had widespread poverty and hunger kind of in the, in the wake of the, of the war and the, the sort of most repressive phase of the dictatorship. So, you know, how did these department stores make it through those times? It was tricky. It's a, it's a really interesting period. And when I was researching this, this is one of the things that I sort of wrestled with. 
because the, the, the expectation, right? The answer that your mind would immediately jump to is, yeah, how on earth could they have survived? Uh, this was a, a terrible, a terrible period in, in Spain's uh, socioeconomic history. It was really, really difficult. But there's a couple things that we need to keep in mind. Okay. First of all, is that the overwhelming majority of department style stores. So I, I'm not talking about the mass department store yet because it's really just Pepin's store and El Corte Inglés after it's founded, mm-hmm. are not dealing in, in the most expensive goods in the universe, right? You know, they, they are actually oriented around bargains. So, so it, it dovetails as well as is possible given the, the depths of predation that are going on, right? But there are a few also mitigating circumstances that are happening. The first is these stores are especially an urban phenomenon at this point. And while Spain is going to urbanize quite a bit in the sense that we're going to have flight from the rural from rural areas to the cities, uh, a problem that continues to this day, right? Mm-hmm. news reports about Spanish ghost towns. You have uh, an artificial concentration of wealth in cities, which mitigates this to some right? You also have uh, a couple of other things. One is Galeria Especial specifically was in an advantageous position because the thing I haven't mentioned yet is Pepin was an ardent Francoist. He had fled the country in 1936 when the, when the war happened. And Cederias Carretas, as Galerias Preciados was then, right? That was the first store. Mm-hmm. Didn't really engage in much commercial activity for the course of the war. But where it could, Pepin had left instructions and continued issuing instructions that the store was to aid the nationalist cause, right? He was a Francoist. This is not up for debate. This is not like a question. Uh, for most of the of the period of the dictator, no, for all of the period of the dictatorship, I don't know why I'm saying most, he was actually personal friends with Carmen Bola, with Franco's wife, the Spanish first lady. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that was both genuine and we may imagine to some degree, cynical isn't the right word, but utilitarian. It's, it, this is a <laughs> useful connection to have. Um, now, what this meant was uh, in in concretely, in those years, the años de hambre, right, the, the hunger years uh, of the 1940s, when there was much privation, as some of our listeners may may know, those who don't, well, you will, part of the problem was that Franco pursued, inspired by his World War II era fascist allies, you know, Franco, of course, didn't participate directly in the war, uh, Nazi Germany and Mussolini's Italy, he was inspired by their pursuit of an autarkic an economic model, by mm. which is meant an economic model that posits that engaging in international trade tends to weaken a nation, right? It makes it beholden to the nations that it trades with because it relies on those nations for the goods that it gets, right? It relies on those nations to purchase the goods that it exports. And this is potentially a sort of crack in the armor, the economic armor of a nation, especially a nation like Germany and Italy, who had a clear war agenda, you know, in the 30s. Right. Um, so Franco was inspired by this and pursued a policy of autarky because at this point in, in the ni- early 1940s, this was the most fascistic period of his dictatorship, which changed political tone over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what this meant was great predation because it was a, 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 it's safe to say an abject failure, 
into Spain. There was great shortage, and this was exacerbated by the fact that the regime, and later day scholarship has shed increasing light on this, uh, deliberately starved portions of the population as well, working class, supposedly right. red aligned portions of the population, right? The idea they're going to be too hungry to be a problem. And if some of them starve to death, well, that's fewer rojos, fewer reds that we have to get rid of. The Franco, the Franco regime liked to work indirectly in this way, as we'll talk about. So what this meant was also that these stores had trouble filling their shelves. But Galerias Preciados a little bit less so than some others. Um, so too, it still had that Cuban connection. Pepin had relatives. He married a Cuban woman. He had relatives back in Cuba. Cesar, his uncle, who had, uh, who had given him his job at El Encanto back in the early 20th century, was still at El Encanto, right? So mm -hmm. he could source, for instance, patterns for the latest uh, tweeds coming out, of, uh, kind of coming out of London fashion. And then to the extent that they could get the materials, they could reproduce these, these, these patterns domestically, which also circumvented another, well, the import restrictions that I was just mentioning, right? Because there were import restrictions as part of the Sotarki policy. You, you, were, you couldn't bring in items that could be produced locally because of economic security. But the other thing that mitigated this is a phenomenon that the journalist uh, uh, Gerald Brennan uh, wrote, uh, wrote about. He's well known for a book called The Spanish Labyrinth, which is a dated and in, at points somewhat problematic, you know, talking about like hot-blooded Spanish temper and things like mm -hmm. that, right? Uh, First-hand account of his uh, experiences in Spain during the Civil War. He also wrote a second book called The Face of Spain. Uh, in 1949, I believe, it came out. And there he mentions that particularly in cities like Madrid, right, so like major urban centers, there was a lot of pressure on people who were working to dress the part, right, to, to, to dress for success, which meant that people were, as much as they could, purchasing items that they couldn't necessarily afford, uh, but they wanted a job. They needed a job, and they wanted as good a job as they could get. And because you have this countervailing pressure to maintain a certain sartorial status the the consumption didn't drop as steeply as it otherwise might have and 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 you alluded this to this a little bit with kind of the connections to the franco regime um but i also wanted to ask you about the the company cultures of the stores in this period and perhaps moving into the 1950s as well when i, when I think they, they're kind of a little more prosperous uh, in that period but you know to what extent did they replicate that national catholic uh ideology that the franco regime had yeah absolutely before I answer that, though, one uh -huh. thing I did forget to mention about the previous uh, – sure. when, when you asked me the previous question that I did want to note is it is important to note about department stores in general that in this period – and by this I mean the early 20th century as well as the, the 19th century, right? So this is true of, of, of all of these department stores at this time. They very rarely are founded as department stores, which are stores defined by selling a wide variety of items segmented into specialized departments, hence the name. Right. They usually start as at least somewhat specialized stores. El Corte Inglés is a great example. It started as a tailor shop, and then it diversified. Even Galerías Preciados, Cedrías Carretas originally, um, started specialized in textiles. That was the most common specialization. 
in the in people still have to get still have to wear clothing right um so in the 40s one thing you saw in for instance women's magazine was ads for seamstressing courses right make your own clothes save money make clothes for your children save money make clothes and sell them make some extra money to supplement the family budget they dealt primarily in textiles so that fit well as well right it's a very different thing trying to convince a family to buy a new suit than it is to buy a bolt of cloth that they can make a bunch of things out anyway company culture so this is where if i may be permitted a moment of immodesty i feel like my book offers its biggest contribution for a, a good a goodly time the understanding that we had of the franco regime was that it was a dictatorship just a dictatorship right by which i mean not like for instance hitler's germany right that is to say that it, Franco's primary focus was on um maintenance of power and compelling of obedience not on the advancement of a uh, socially pervasive ideological agenda. Mm-hmm. Now one thing that uh, uh, a more recent wave of scholarship of which my book I hope is part uh has started to do is point out that no in fact if we look a little more closely and kind of take the regime at its word you know as opposed to second guessing all the things it says then what we see is that yes it was a deeply protean regime it was a regime that could change its stripes in many ways but that there is an ideological core that does not change and that ideological core at the heart of it is national catholicism right this very conservative uh ideology for much of the franco regime's existence out of step with the gradually more progressive mainstream catholic church that not only stressed obedience in general but for instance subjugation of women and submission to paternal authority on the part of both women and also children and modesty uh patriotism adherence to normative gender roles where the man is virile but also chaste in some kind of weird oxymoronic way yeah. uh the woman is is absolutely chaste and any kind of sexual expression is outright demonized mm-hmm. and so and 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 uh fervent patriotism which excluded for instance expression of regional identity catalan identity basque identity and so forth so the reason i mention that is because one thing i argue is that what we see in uh during the earliest period of the franco regime is something that a uh a jesuit priest and um scholar or thinker within the vein of national catholic uh francoist thought so he was writing tracts at the time that uh, that that sort of contemplated the thinking of the new spain franco's new spain mm-hmm. that what they were implementing was something he called subjective totalitarianism by which was meant not you know this outright rule where the state is very openly and visibly pervading every part of your life a model that by the way you know people said that this was what 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 uh hitler's germany did but also increasingly modern scholarship on on hitlerian germany has pointed out that the nazi regime was far more chaotic and ruled far more via indirect action than was previously thought So mm-hmm. Frank was not actually as out of step as we as we thought he was mm-hmm. but a, a totalitarianism by proxy where Franco didn't impose these moral standards and 
create a, a division of moral policing. No. Instead, he worked through the church. He let the church do the work, right? And he had close relations with the church, right? He didn't found state schools that would that would inculcate children with national Catholic Francoist uh, ideology. No. The church had control of the educational system. Mm-hmm. And similarly, one thing I detected in Galerias Preciados, which it, let's remember, had this close connection with the regime, right? Personal connection with the regime. Was that the company culture reproduced heavily a lot of national Catholic content. Obedience, loyalty, loyalty to the store because it was the 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 body that gave you life, right? That that, that gave you your livelihood. Um, obedience to the paternal figure of the shop manager, which contained a gendered component, because while you do have male store salespersons, a lot of the personnel were women, mm-hmm. younger, unmarried women. A codified, so the Franco regime expected women to marry. That was that was set up as the ultimate ideal goal for all women. And if you diverged from it, well, there was something wrong with you. And if you married, you were, of course, to leave your job. You had to leave your job and care for the home because that was what was expected. The, the nuclear family in this respect was the building block of the larger body politic of Spain, right? Mm-hmm. And so anyway, the, uh, the, the store codified this by having a rigid requirement that a woman who married received a adote. This is a dowry, right? A, a big upfront payment uh, keyed to her wages. And then was let go. Later, this became elective once social mores started to, to loosen mm-hmm. in, in, in the later days of the Franco regime. But this was absolutely codified. Um, also, you know, we talk about the pay gap. Well, here there was no dissimulating. There was no uh, what's Spanish dissimulando. There was no hiding or trying to cover up pay gap. Oh no, it was officially encoded. Women earned 70 to 80% of what men did if they did the exact same thing. Um, mm. Because the idea was that women's work was codified as secondary. And it's something they were only doing to pass the time until they were married, which was the whole point of the exercise. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, when, now, some of this may sound like not too different from places like the U.S. in the sense of the expectation, because a lot of these countries were also very conservative when it came to gender norms. Mm-hmm. And that's actually true. And that's worth noting because we tend to have this very congratulatory narrative of like, oh, Franco's Spain is this terrible beast over there. And by comparison, the U.S. and Britain and all these places were lovely wonderlands of progressivism. The truth is more complicated than that. Um, in fact, the connections that, as I'll talk about in a sec, Fra- the Franco regime maintained with, with, the, with U.S. society and commerce pretty consistently throughout the Franco regime's existence were in the early days not at all threatening because there wasn't that much that was threatening that was coming out of the United States. <laughs> like for the most part, U.S. gender gender norms were not incompatible with this. But the difference is, and I'm going to give you a concrete example here. And Galerias Preciados, there was a policy, and this remained throughout the store's existence, called traición a la casa, treason against the store. It was in. Uh, em- the employee code of conduct, the handbook, the normas, as it was called, which was like an employee bible, uh, it was constantly harped upon in the employee bulletin as this like sacred document that we must all adhere to, penned, of course, by the founder himself. So, 
Traición a la casa, treason against the house, specified that it, you know because the store and your the store's life and your life as the worker are have, are so deeply intertwined, and it is the source of your livelihood. It is supreme disloyalty, betrayal, most vile, ethically wrong for you to buy anything that the store sells somewhere else. Mm -hmm. If you work for the store, something that Galeria sells, you cannot buy at any other place. And if you do, you're fired. So, and what you have to keep in mind is Galerias, sure, it started as a textile store. It diversified rapidly, right? Eventually you could buy your car, life insurance, travel packages. You could, you could stock your home. Mm -hmm. Heck, at one point they even dealt in real estate. I argue that the store was colonizing workers' lives, right? Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, when we talk about the, the model of totalitarianism, the idea, when we strip away the sort of histrionics and we talk about the idea of totalitarianism as a system where there is an effort to create a total citizen, where the subject, the individual, every aspect of their life is of legitimate interest to the state or totalitarian regime of control, that's what we're seeing here. They form mm -hmm. employee social clubs that, sure, they provide people a way to pass their time outside the store, but there's also heavy pressure to join and spend all their time outside the store. And the idea is that it's also tied to uplift, the idea being, well, if they're here, then we can control what they're doing with their spare time, which means that they're not going to get into bad habits, which, by the way, could include smoking. <laughs> smoking was considered a no-no. So, yeah, you can see that there's this inculcation of, of discipline and policing of behavior along moral lines, because there was a heavily moralizing aspect to this as well. The idea that you shouldn't associate with people who are morally uh, questionable because that can reflect badly on you and then badly on the store. And again, there can be consequences, material consequences to that. And the store kept things, they, at one point they were even trying to tell people how to brush their teeth. Believe In terms of this, um these kind of very strict rules about the, the loyalty and, and actually having this code that you have to follow. It reminds me a lot of the kind of military mentality that, that, that I've noticed in, in my own research that the Franco regime seems to have kind of wanted to bring to the, to the whole society. Uh, one thing I note at one point in, uh, in the first body chapter, which is where I really talk about this, this kind of um, heavy imposition of power right, mm -hmm. in the early years, is that some of that military language filters into the store directly. First of all, you know, la mili, the uh, compulsory military service, which existed all the way till, you know, 20-something years ago. The, so, for example, the, the Galerias Preciados had an employee bulletin. This is one of the things that they borrowed from uh, an American example, from Macy's, actually. Uh, Pepin's son, Jose Manuel, who was already an adult when Pepin moved over from Cuba. He had done a stint in, uh, he did a stint at Macy's in 1948 and came back very impressed by this bulletin. So they launched one and it became mm -hmm. a major mouthpiece for management. It was definitely not a, uh, a, uh, a sounding board for employees themselves, really? uh, for like rank and file employees. I mean. But like, for instance, they had an article where when they opened a new branch in Bilbao in 1960, the language talked about how workers were going to launch Galerias's first Bilbao branch. Uh, those workers were shock troops who were taking Bilbao without a single casualty, 
right? Uh, and the, 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 the title was Rafagas Bilbaínas, right? Uh, Rafaga being a volley. Also, they uh, routinely provided coverage, profiles of people who were going off to do their me, their military service, lionizing them, uh, really celebrating that they were doing their duty for la patria, for the fatherland. No, and of course, there were accommodations for that legally mm-hmm. that there had to be, but this was really celebrated and leaned into. Before we take our break here, I wanted to ask you one last question, because in the second half, you know, we're going to talk about uh, to what extent things change as we get into the later um, Franco years. But but even in this earlier period, like around the 1950s, were there ways in which, you know, we could say that the stores were beginning to undermine Francoism, in fact, in, in some ways, uh, especially given those international connections that you mentioned? One of, one of the sort of facile things that sometimes people talk about or state and that mm, can make one leery, certainly made me leery initially, to tell a narrative where capitalist forms of commerce and consumption came into Spain and liberalization followed is that there can be this very simplistic equation sometimes mm-hmm. in popular discourse between consumer capitalism and liberalization. That narrative was the cornerstone of the U.S.'s consumer diplomacy in the Cold War, right? You know, there's a reason why this perception exists. To be clear, no. Uh, Consumer consumer, uh, capitalism does not equal liberalization. Mm -hmm. With that said, what I discovered was that the department stores kept open. So the Franco regime Recall, we're pursuing a policy of autarky. We're pursuing a policy of, as Franco once put it in a speech, uh, backwardness, but blessed backwardness, right? You know, the idea that we are Spanish, we are particular, we are the spiritual reservoir of Occident, right? These are this these are all notions that will be familiar to, to historians of Francoism. This idea that the the Franco regime's founding mythology included a core component, which was that Spain is different. Spain is special. And not Spain is different in the sense of the tourist slogan. Spain is different in the sense of like it possesses a deeper spiritual wisdom that the decadent West has lost, if it ever had, right? Parliamentary liberalism, democracy, secularism, all of these were toxic currents that had that had destroyed the spiritual foundation. Right. There's a lot, and there are a lot of problems with this from our perspective, of course. But this was a cornerstone of Francoism's sort of justification. So what this unbroken, because it really was unbroken in the realm of commerce and on the consumer side, consumer awareness of Paris fashion, London fashion, of Hollywood, Hollywood fashions, the doings of stars in Hollywood, the star system, as it's called. It, one of the things that it, that, it, that it caused was just a retention and to some degree, solidification, maybe even a widening of a pathway, a channel mm-hmm. by which ideas, content could continue to enter Spain from abroad, from these areas that officially, per the regime, and even, you know, if you'd like gotten Pepin in a corner and asked him, maybe he himself directly would have said, yes, you know, they're decadent. Nevertheless, it, it, per- it could permit the entry of these knowledge of ideas of 
cultural practices from these uh, from these other nations. And okay, as I mentioned earlier, in the 40s and early 50s, maybe that's fine because there's nothing really transgressive going on at the end of the day right. in practical terms going on in those places. But the 1960s is a little different. Those conduits are going to start to matter. But the, the other thing, the one thing I will say that you start to see in the 50s, and you can consider transgressive, but with an asterisk, right? This isn't a sharp break. There's there's a, a, a common place that historians are either lumpers or splitters, right? Uh, yes. I'm very much a lumper. I uh, splitters being people who find sharp, who tend to find sharp breaks. Lumpers are people who tend to stress commonalities and gradual change and see kind of bleed between periods. I'm my work very much falls in that camp. Like the fifties mm-hmm. is a is a time of transition, but it, there is no sharp break. Maybe nineteen fifty nine. We'll talk about it a little bit, but not really. What you instead see is more and more this conduit starts to just continue doing what it's done. So, too, the normalization of Spanish relations with the rest of the world, which takes place in the late 40s and early 1950s, right, culminating with uh, Spain's, I believe the final bit was Spain's uh, admission to the UN in 1955. Um, but the, the sort of big data point that uh, everybody talks about is the Concordat between uh, the Vatican and, and Franco, as well as the normalization of relations between the U.S. and Spain, both of which happened in 1950. Again, you see beginning of an American presence in outside of Madrid, for instance, as an airbase is founded in Torrejón de Ardoz, mm-hmm. right outside of Madrid, and American shoppers, like the wives of commanders of the American airbase, coming into Galerías Preciados to shop, right? Special fashion shows being held to cater to the ladies of the American airbase, as they put it in the in the company literature. And uh, and what this does is this this sends a message, right? Which is that you know maybe Spain is is still the spiritual reservoir of Occident and whatever, but it's also part of a kind of a club, right? The club of Western nations. It's 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 also part of this 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 exchange, and in that sense is a, a unique member, but nevertheless a member among other members of this social and economic community, so to speak. Right. And that has the potential to be profoundly subversive once it comes into a more direct conflict with the parts of the, of the early Francoist formulation of Spain as different and unique that aren't flexible. Yeah, I, I like that. That makes sense, that idea of, of, of these conduits, uh, even if there aren't any particular you know, revolutionary ideas at, at, at that time, uh, it kind of opens the door if, um, for that later on. So, so that's what we're going to talk about uh, in just a minute, but we'll take a short pause uh, first. That's the end of part one of our interview with Alejandro Gomez del Moral. Please continue to part two for our discussion of the department store in the late Franco period.